Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In recent years, students at Yale have pushed the university to divest its multi-billion dollar endowment from fossil fuel companies in response to the climate change crisis. The divestment movement, a form of protest, has grown on other campuses, but so far at Yale, its endowment leaders haven't budged. Coming up, we'll learn more about divesting or the sale of stock in certain companies to advocate for change. We'll also hear different viewpoints on whether the movement is effective in getting institutions to think about more than just financial gain when investing. Now, do you think about ethical implications when you invest your money? We want to hear from you. Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, my first guest joining us by phone is Mary Evelyn Tucker, supporter of Fossil Free Yale, also director of the Forum on World Religions and Ecology at the university, where she also teaches. Uh, Mary Evelyn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lucy. So briefly, uh, describe divestment. Did I do an okay job describing it to listeners who may not have thought about this concept before? How would you describe it? Right. Well, in very general terms, of course, it's, it's just reduction of assets for financial or ethical reasons. In, in this case, um, we're talking about fossil fuel divestment. So in 2010, there was tremendous pressure around the country um, in this movement to divest of stocks and bonds connected to companies involved in the extracted fossil fuel industry. This is moving to towards divest and invest in uh, renewables and so on. But what's happened in, since that time, in five years, in 2015, this has become the largest divestment movement in history. And in December 2018, it's included over 1,000 institutions, 58,000 individuals, and $8 trillion worth of assets. So this is a very significant movement, Lucy. Mm. I mentioned this is a student-led movement at Yale. We're going to be hearing from uh, one of them in just a little (laughs) bit. Uh, You teach at uh, the university. Uh, Why did you get involved in this uh, divestment movement? So I teach at the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, the oldest uh, environment school in the country, and also Divinity School and Religious Studies. And I'm involved because um, having studied the environment for uh, really 50 years uh, and studying the moral issues uh, involved here on what we're um, facing, um, I am very much a supporter of the fact that We are not just in a moment of climate change, but climate emergency. The UK Parliament just voted for that. We have all kinds of new stakeholders moving in to say that this is a climate emergency. We have other uh, groups beginning to divest. The medical profession, the AMA, um, is divesting because this is is health costs and so on and, and related issues there. The insurance industry, the Swiss Re, Munich Re have been talking about this forever, but in April at the stockholders meeting of Chubb Insurance, they said they will no longer uh, support insurance in forest, fire, 
areas and drought-ridden areas in certain coastal water properties. Uh, businesses are going to lose money uh, in the trillions of dollars. The European Investment Bank just announced that it's, it won't invest in fossil fuel projects. The World Bank has, mm. has said this. So I'm supporting the students because more and more stakeholders, including business and insurance, and finally, <laughs> the Department of Defense is saying this is a national security issue. Our bases in Norfolk and elsewhere are being subject to rising waters. So it's a national security issue. The Department of Defense has been saying this for eight years. We need to take action. It's our students' future. It's the next generation's future. That's why I'm supporting them. Uh, Mary Evelyn, you mentioned uh, different groups that have uh, divested. Uh, a couple years ago, the Catholic Church made headlines for uh, divesting from fossil fuel companies. Um, so it is interesting to see this uh, diverse uh, movement uh, growing. But I'm curious about the response at Yale University. Uh, you teach. Uh, many people um, have graduated or go to school there now. It's a world-renowned university. And so I'm wondering, have you? Um, what do you think about the pushback that there's the reason the university is world-renowned, this endowment supporting the type of research um, and academic rigor uh, that Yale has been come to know, be known for? Yeah, I think it's a good question, obviously. Um, so we have one of the largest endowments in, in college and university education, uh, $29, $29 billion. Uh, Harvard's is $39 billion. Um, and so there's a moral responsibility here uh, to take action. This came up, of course, uh, many years ago with the divestment issue in South Africa. But, you know, this is even bigger. And my question to Yale is, first of all, let me acknowledge that David Swenson is rather a genius <laughs> in investment, and he is well-respected at Yale. And he has made, uh, actually five years ago, in a letter of April of August 2014, August 27th, he did encourage his uh, portfolio managers to examine uh, less uh, gas and and, mm -hmm. and oil uh, emitting companies, and he he put that letter out. It had a, a fairly strong effect in the investment world um, to say you have to examine what these companies are doing. And he did even say that there's examined their social responsibility in this area. Uh, he followed up with conversations and so on with those portfolio managers. But let's note, this was 2014, where five years later, it was post. We've now had a Paris uh, agreement where people are, or countries are, um, have made voluntary commitments to reduce their fossil fuel emissions. So we need some updating uh, from Yale on these issues. And even his the report that came out in August 2016 um, is not really sufficient. And why is that the case? Because the argument by the Office of Investment is still that this is a problem of the consumers, not the producers of oil and gas. Now, that is a flawed argument at best, um, especially when we have producers who are disrupting uh, the environment, dis disrupting with infrastructure building and so on that will last into the future, um, disrupting the ability, actually, as David Attenborough, uh, known renowned scientist in England, says, 
collapse of civilization is on the horizon. In other words, we are destroying our ecosystems. We are impacting especially vulnerable people around the world. This is an environmental justice issue. Uh, what has happened just in this last year, 2018, the cost this country alone of $91 billion of hurricanes and fires and so on uh, should say that there's something here that is financially no longer viable and mo- morally unacceptable. And that is what the students are saying. Mary Evelyn Tucker. That is our issue. Mary Evelyn Tucker joins me by phone. She's a supporter of fossil-free Yale. As we look more into this divestment movement growing uh, across college campuses, uh, not just at Yale University, but this idea that uh, students and others are pushing investment leaders uh, to uh, think about uh, ways to divest uh, their um, investments in fossil fuel companies. Uh, you can join our conversation. This is a question maybe that you've thought about uh, when you're thinking about investing, the ethical implications of, of where your money's being invested. The number 860-275-7266 or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, Mary Evelyn, you mentioned that uh, the movement is more divest, invest. Uh, what do you mean? So if uh, Yale were to remove all their holdings in fossil fuel companies, um, what would be the result? So, first of all, this is a process that's not going to happen overnight, and uh, certainly Swenson acknowledges that. So does the divestment movement. We are in the largest position in human history from fossil fuel energy supplies to renewables and alternative energies. Now, we could say if we had started investing in renewable energies 25 years ago, we wouldn't be in this particular mess. But the interesting news is that Alternative energies um, such as solar and wind and geothermal and so on have actually come to scale, namely they're affordable, that certain uh, states have given uh, subsidies. We have solar on our house because Connecticut um, gave subsidies um, to make it uh, uh, possible. So the divest means we then move to invest in research and development and supporting these alternative energies and so on. The Wallace Global Fund, one of the great philanthropic funds in New York, um, started this, helped to start this movement. And we've got to remember that um, the companies that have been responsible for this uh, destruction of the environment um, are now being held accountable in all kinds of ways. The Rockefeller Brothers divested uh, from their assets in Exxon, the generations after John D. Rockefeller, the grandchildren, tried to call Exxon to accountability. Exxon was not uh, by any means clear. In fact, they were some of the leaders of the deception and deceit uh, from the 70s as to why fossil fuels were causing climate change. They are being sued by New York State and others for this deception. This came out in the Los Angeles Times and and so on. So even the the children of the Exxon company tried to persuade and tried to engage Exxon in changes. And this is why across the board, engagement has not worked sufficiently. Now, I'm not saying that people shouldn't involve shareholder engagement and social uh, responsibility, and many groups do, uh, and, and I think that's, that's noteworthy and applaudable. 
But what is needed is something even more effective. And this Mm -hmm. is the gradual transition from divestment to investment. And this is a moral issue. My final point here is if we are saying these companies have led the public to misunderstand uh, the issues to to still have a, a public that is skeptical of climate change because of uh, the deception of these companies, as well as Koch brothers and think tanks, which our colleague at the forestry school, Justin Farrell, has demonstrated very well in his article for the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, that deception for funding think tanks along these lines is widespread and multi-decades. So, Mary Evelyn, I wanted to Mary Evelyn, I wanted to bring in one of the students that are possi- a part of Fossil Free Yale before we run out of time. Uh, again, this is where we live. We're talking about that divestment movement uh, growing on college campuses. Uh, Mary Evelyn Tucker joins us. She's a supporter of Fossil Free Yale. And uh, Adriana Colon Adorno is now on the phone. She's one of the students that has been participating in sit-ins at the Yale Investments Office. We heard Mary Evelyn earlier talking about uh, Mr. Swenson. That's uh, David Swenson, who heads up uh, the Yale investments office uh, responsible for, again, that $29 billion endowment. Uh, Adriana, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So you're part of Fossil Free Yale. You know, what led you to join the movement? Yeah, so uh, Fossil Free Yale is a student group on campus that's been around for about eight years now. Um, I got involved a couple years ago um, specifically because I became really interested in the climate justice narrative that they were proposing um, by encouraging Yale to divest from fossil fuels, but also the Puerto Rican debt for a kind of combined um, environmental justice approach to the problem. So tell us more about that. So not just calling on fossil fuel companies uh, to, or not calling on Yale to divest or take away um, uh, their uh, holdings in fossil fuel companies, but you also are holding Yale responsible for, uh, tell me more about the holdings of Puerto Rican debt. Yeah, so Yale is invested in fund managers, and several of the fund managers uh, that they're invested in are also some of the largest owners of uh, the large Puerto Rican debt. Um, So our demands include divesting from fossil fuel companies and also instructing fund managers to cancel the portion of the Puerto Rican debt that they own. Um, And... The reason why we're not just taking a racial justice approach or just an environmental approach um, is because we really believe that, you know, connecting narratives is what will be the most effective approach um, with divestment. Because ultimately, to be successful, divestment should be a social movement um, and, you know, calling upon genuine human narratives that people can connect to is what really encourages people to embrace people power and engage in divestment movements. Uh, We heard Mary Evelyn say earlier that this movement won't happen overnight. It takes a a long time to enact the change that you're looking for. Uh, I'm just curious, in the time that you've been at Yale, you know, how has uh, Yale University responded and, you know, the overall uh, campus community to uh, your uh, call for change as well as others as part of Fossil Free Yale? Yeah, so um, the primary response that we get from administration and stuff is uh, 
um, it, I think it's important that uh, Professor Tucker mentioned social responsibility because that's the term they really like to hold on to. Um, but for them, social responsibility just means that it's legal. Um, and we're really making the point that legality does not exemplify morality or what's ethical, you know, especially when fossil fuel companies have not really played fair or illegally. Um, so we're, you know, really pushing uh, people to realize that economics are not apolitical. Um, and because of that, divestment is also meant to be political. Um, and we're just kind of trying to make the point that um, while divestment is a economic tactic um, at face value, it also really is about changing what is socially and politically acceptable. Mm. Um, and, you know, social movements like that do take time, but that's where their power lies. Uh, we did reach out to Yale University. Uh, Karen Pert, who's director of external communications, uh, sent us a statement um, saying that Yale does not disclose its investments. So she's unable to share details about the endowment investments in a particular category, but uh, wanted to underscore members of the advisory committee on investor responsibility include faculty, students, staff, and alumni. Uh, and so I'm just um, curious if you could respond uh, to that uh, statement, uh, Adriana, the fact that there you know, there are members of the Yale community as part of this committee. Um, do you feel like they're taking your concerns into account? Um, it's definitely been a very long, slow process. Um, Fossil for Yale has had meetings and reports with the Advisor Committee for Investor Responsibility uh, for years now, and nothing's really changed. Um, and Ultimately, the, that advisory committee can recommend action to, um, you know, kind of higher ups in the administrative ladder. Um, and we've also just kind of made the point that um, higher up Yale administration could also make the decision to divest. Uh, David Swenson could make the decision to divest. They don't need to rely on the Advisory Committee for Investor Responsibility to make that decision. Um, and, yeah, kind of going back to there are, you know, some students and community members on that panel. Um, one of the biggest pushbacks that you get is, like, uh, you know, the economics is complicated and Yale has to make a profit and the endowment is important. Um but we're, again, kind of making the point that um, none of this is apolitical. And as soon as you remove the impact on human lives from the conversation to try to keep it you know, clean and cut, it almost makes the conversation pointless. Well, well, Adriana so, Colon Adorno, we thank you for you know coming on to explain why you are participating as a Yale student, also a coalition member of Fossil Free Yale. Uh, this is where we live uh, from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk more about divestment and also ask: Is divesting from a certain company an effective way to push for change? We're going to explore that question, and we'll also take yours. You can join us eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Students at Yale University are part of a growing movement on campuses to pressure colleges and universities to divest or to sell off stock in oil, coal, and gas companies as a form of protest over fossil fuels' role in the climate change crisis. We've been talking about this with Mary Evelyn Tucker, a supporter of the fossil-free Yale movement. It's a student-led campaign to get Yale to divest its endowment from fossil fuels. She also teaches on campus, and she's on the phone with us. Now, does divestment have the desired impact? For another perspective, joining us by phone is a climate economist, Dr. Harry Saunders, who is part of the Carnegie or is the Carnegie Energy Innovation Advisor for the Carnegie Institution for Science. He also contributed uh, to the latest intergovernmental panel on climate change report, which warned of the urgency to act on climate change. Uh, Harry, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Good morning. Uh, thanks for having me, Lucy. And you can also join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, so we were talking about uh, divestment um, and what's been leading uh, the, ch- uh, the movement at Yale University. But as a climate economist, uh, Harry, you know, what are some mis- misconceptions that uh, people may have about divestment and what it can, in fact, uh, accomplish? Yeah. So uh, first, uh, let me say that, you know, I believe the intent of the Yale students' cause is right on target and beyond reproach. And it's just wonderful to see this groundswell of commitment and passion among these young people. And we see all around the world, that's the force that we need for building solutions. And second, climate change is real and it is urgent. We must act quickly to get off fossil fuels. Uh, um, uh, You mentioned the IPCC report. I think that shows the case very starkly. And then on top of that, a recent uh, 2015 article in the journal Nature uh, shows that we can't afford to extract and use all the oil and gas that uh, exist under the ground. So... um, with that as background, I, I, I would just say that uh, that divestment in itself is, I'd argue, ineffective in directly keeping more oil and gas in the ground. Um, and there are a couple fundamental misunderstandings, I think, that many people have, which is that divestment doesn't affect the flow of funds into an enterprise. All it is is an exchange of ownership. So if uh, I own uh, fossil fuel stocks and I sell them to the market, all that happens is that the ownership of that changes, goes to someone else, doesn't go into the company. And similarly, the, uh, you know, Professor Tucker's uh, thought about the uh, reinvest in, uh, in clean energy a similar issue there is that just by buying the uh, securities of clean energy firms doesn't infuse any uh, any funds into that uh, company. Uh, on the divest side, the extraction, the, the sale, the divestment doesn't change the underlying fundamental economics of uh, oil and gas and and so the the solutions have to lie elsewhere and and I'd love to see the passion of these students uh directed more toward what is what will be truly effective in in helping us with this 
clear and urgent crisis. So what are some, in your um, opinion, uh, effective strategies for uh, these activists uh, uh, to pull towards if, if divestment is something that you see as ineffective? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's, I mean, this is a huge, thorny, difficult problem. And, uh, you know, these bright young minds need to be nurtured to find solutions. And uh, uh, in my view, the solutions lie on the uh, supply side of the equation, quickly developing clean, cheap, and abundant energy sources. And also on the demand side, uh, you know, electric vehicles, it's, there's huge challenges, there's social and economic uh, problems to work out, and in particular, it's the third world countries that I think we need, really need to, to worry about. I mean, there's something like 2.8 billion people uh, worldwide that uh, have no, they live in energy poverty, meaning they rely on wood, charcoal, and dung. It is huge health problems, disenfranchises women. They need clean energy. And so there's a, an ethical dilemma associated with restricting the supply of energy that they need. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Puerto Rico is is a prime example of the of the tight connection between energy energy supply and the uh, economic and uh, welfare of, of a population. So it's the problem is much larger and the challenge is much greater than I think is commonly understood. And I think divestment is a distraction. Uh, again, uh, with us is Dr. Harry Saunders, a climate uh, economist, uh, the Carnegie Energy Innovation Advisor for the Carnegie Institution for Science. You can join our conversation on divestment, 860-275-7266. Uh, Mary Evelyn Tucker is still with us uh, from Yale, a supporter of fossil-free Yale, a supporter of divestment. Um, Mary Evelyn, I'm curious if you could respond to some of Harry's points. Well, divestment is clearly not a distraction, something that has gained $8 trillion, that has gained uh, cities around the world, New York, Berlin, Copenhagen, countries are divesting, including Ireland, museums, uh, and major philanthropic groups. So it's hardly a, a, a distraction. And I think the real problem is that when Yale argues that it's the um, the suppliers, it's not their problem. Namely, the oil companies are just a neutral force giving us what we want. They have helped create the need, denied the environmental costs. They've benefited at the expense of the health of the consumer and the flourishing of the environment. And moreover, they've influenced public opinion towards skepticism and denial. So we are one of the few countries in the world that still has many people thinking climate change is not real. And finally, they have contributed to inequity, along with our students' concern about climate justice. I mean, inequity <laughs> such that retirement packages for Rex Tilson was $200 million and his predecessor was $400 million. This is contributing to massive inequity, massive denial of the greatest problems that humans are facing. And if we say at Yale, our motto being truth and, and light, light and truth, how are we possibly profiting off of companies that have led 
to denial, skepticism, the destruction of the environment, and massive inequities. This is morally irresponsible. I'm not saying we have immediate answers as to how to do this, but the question is, can Yale's moral imagination align with its mottos of truth and light and align with a scientific um, understanding that climate change is the greatest existential threat to our planet. Yes, we have things going on campus in, in terms of this, trying to measure our carbon footprints. We have many uh, scholars studying this. We have classes on this uh, and so on. But there's something larger and a moral shift is what's needed. It's why um, religious institutions have done this, mm -hmm. the World Council of Churches uh, and so on, UCC. Uh, United Church of Christ, with a, one of Yale's graduates, Jim Antel, ha, has led their divestment movement. Gus Beth, our former dean, the head of <clears throat> the World Resources Institute founder and the National Resources Defense Council, is strongly advocating uh, for this. We had a thousand people sign a letter at Yale supporting this. We've had alums supporting it. The vast majority of students support it. I think there's a moral groundswell uh, in this direction. Well, Mary Evelyn Tucker, again, we thank you for joining us here on Where We Live uh, to explain uh, why the movement is so important to you and many others at the university. Again, Mary Evelyn Tucker uh, is a supporter of Fossil Free uh, Yale and also director of the Forum on World Religions and Ecology at Yale, where she also teaches. Uh, you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Before we broaden out our discussion um, of divestment uh, from Yale, I wanted to take uh, some calls. Uh, so I believe uh, Jonathan is calling from Woodbridge. Jonathan, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, so tell us, what's your question or comment? Yeah, my question is, um, I think we need to call out the fossil fuel industry for a concerted disinformation campaign that they've perpetrated. Here's an example. The Koch brothers are worth $53 billion. They're the eighth richest family. The Koch brothers have an organization called Americans for Prosperity. They sent the, the mayors and first select people of every one of the 169 towns in Connecticut their curriculum saying how natural gas is a great thing. Uh, you know, this is a travesty because in Woodbridge, Connecticut, where I live, we have solar panels on the grade school, on the high school, on the JCC, on the library. We have a microgrid. We have a fuel cell. We have a 57-acre organic farm. And for uh, the people of, of the state to not understand that the fossil fuel industry has been involved in this concerted disinformation campaign to tell people, oh, you know, we, we have to study this, we have to get involved, the technology's not here. That, that's immoral. So Mary Evelyn Tucker is 100% correct. We have a moral problem here, and until the public gets aware of, uh, of how insidious and, and deep the fossil fuel industry has carried on this disinformation campaign, there won't be the political will. Well, so thank you. I thank you, Jonathan from Woodbridge for calling in. I wanted to get our other guest, Dr. Harry Saunders, uh, to respond. Uh, you, Harry, you talked about your points of how you see uh, divestment as ineffective, but uh, Mary Evelyn, as well as Jonathan, saying that fossil fuel companies should be held accountable and divestment is one campaign uh, to uh, correct that misinformation, put pressure on these fossil fuel companies. What's your response? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I, I agree with uh, 
Mary Evelyn, that it, it is a moral issue, and also the caller, it is a moral issue, for sure. Um, but what it comes down to is divestment does not hurt the companies that are divested from. If it, To the extent that, that part of the objective is, is to bring them to, to heal, uh, divestment doesn't doesn't af- affect them because it does not change the underlying economics of the enterprise operation. It just shifts ownership among other people. So, um, you know, I, I I agree with the sentiments being expressed here, but the the strategy is flawed. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. We got a tweet from uh, Magdalena who says, as a financial advisor, I've seen a significant uptick among the younger gen- younger generations asking to invest sustainably. Uh, and so if that's something that you're thinking about, you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live, uh, thinking about the ethical implications of where your money is invested. Uh, Mary Jane is calling. Mary Jane is calling from North Stonington. Mary Jane, go ahead. Oh, yes. I just wanted to say that um, if you took the land that is being flooded, small island nations, some of them will have to, everybody will have to evacuate it. There won't even be any land. If you took the value of that land and put it on the scale, it seems to me that it would be an argument for uh, divestment. And also, what's the difference between divestment and a boycott? It would seem to me that if South Africa got rid of apartheid because so much, so many prestigious businesses wouldn't bother with it, that it would be effective. Now, that's just what I have to say. Well, thank you, Mary Jane, uh, for your comment. Um, It actually uh, goes really well with bringing in our next guest. Umer Irfan is a staff writer at Vox.com. We wanted to learn more about divestment uh, broadly. Um, He's joining us today from Monitor Studios in Washington, D.C. Umer, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So we just heard uh, from a caller in Connecticut uh, mentioning if divestment worked for apartheid, uh, why not uh, for uh, fossil fuel companies? So maybe you could give us some more context about how long this divestment movement has existed and has it been effective in other places? Sure. Uh, South Africa is sort of the classic case of divestment. Um, And the idea was that a lot of activists around the world pooled their resources and tried to withdraw them from the South African government to protest the discrimination that was systemic in the apartheid regime. But the thing to remember is that this was a campaign that started in the 1960s and the apartheid regime didn't fall until 1994. So it's worth noting that, yeah, a divestment could be effective, but it can take a very, very long time for those uh, results to materialize. Now, some economists have actually looked at the divestment campaign in South Africa and the boycott campaign, and they've found some mixed results as to how effective it is. Some have said that it's actually not been that effective in terms of like actually making a material difference to the South African economy. But what it did do was it definitely hurt the country's brand around the world. It became so politically toxic to do business with South Africa and that major economies were finding it so difficult to even you know, share the stage or to have you know, their money or, or any of their businesses um, operating in South Africa that they created a lot of public pressure from around the world on the uh, regime. And that was a part of why they eventually had to yield. 
When we look at the divestment movement, uh, specifically at college campuses, uh, that movement uh, appears to be growing. So is that an indication that um, you know more people are um, wanting to see the fossil fuel companies take responsibility for their role in climate change? And this, this is their way of, of wanting to see change? Well, I think college campuses are sort of a unique case study in this because Universities and colleges, they have a public service mission. Most of them are nonprofits, and ostensibly that means that they perform a service to the public. And and also they educate the next generation. And so there's this twin mission of basically trying to serve the general interest but also plan for the future. And with those two combined, that creates a pretty powerful case for divesting from fossil fuels when you're talking about what you intend the future of the planet to be like and also what kinds of people you're training to inherit that world. And so that's kind of uh, and we we are seeing that's why we're seeing, you know, college campuses and universities being the biggest battlegrounds of this rather than, you know, investment banks. Uh, We've been focusing in on endowments. You know, how exactly do they work? You know, who's in charge of these investments and, you know, how easy could it be to divest if Yale were to make that decision? Well, endowments are kind of basically giant piles of money there from contributed to from you know student tuition money from alumni donations from the accrued value of land and other resources that a university has and generally the uh, interest and the dividends those uh, that pile of money generates is used to fund things like operating expenses at the school and whatnot um, you know you may be familiar with the Alaska permanent fund that's sort of a similar thing but that was created through oil and gas money and it pays a dividend to every person in the state. So uh, that's um, so that's the, the sort of the mechanics of it. Now, in terms of uh, uh, changing your investment portfolio, I mean that's what uh, managers, fund managers do. Like that is David mm-hmm. Swenson's job is to kind of pick and um, figure out, you know, what are the best strategic bets for this uh, um, endowment. And um, and yeah, they definitely do make these kinds of moral judgments as well. I mean, there was a campaign among college campuses to not invest in say tobacco stocks. Mm-hmm. And so they have made ethical decisions um, at the expense of, you know, financial decisions because tobacco stocks are still, you know, doing pretty well. So the question now that campaigners are asking is, like, why can we not put, you know, fossil fuels and climate change investing in that same category? It is ironic as well, and and both Mary Evelyn Tucker uh, and others have mentioned that, you know, Yale University is is one of many universities that um, is putting forth, you know, groundbreaking research into climate change and why uh, there should be more investment in renewables. At the same time, that endowment uh, that's made money off of fossil fuel companies is helping pay for that research and making it the reputable university that it is. Right. I mean, an investment is essentially a bet on the future. And there, and that that is why the moral argument comes into play. You are betting that the fossil fuel industry will continue to perform well, will continue to grow and expand, and at the same time, arguing that you know the we cannot continue to allow the fossil fuel industry to grow and expand. That there is going to have to be a massive constraint in our use of coal, oil, and natural gas around the world in order to limit the uh, warming that we're projected to see in this century. Um, of the when I was thinking about uh, this show, you know, we've also been hearing from cities and municipalities that are divesting from fossil fuel companies uh, with their pension funds, and so uh, you know they're they're accountable to the retirees that are part of the pensions. And so, in that regard, when we think about uh, university endowments, is the university is David Swenson accountable to the students, the alumni, the faculty? Uh, yeah, I mean, they regularly have these public shareholder meetings, and you have seen, you know, the the Yale divestment campaigners disrupt some of those meetings as some of their uh, protest actions. 
So, yeah, because it is a nonprofit profit institution and because they are accountable to, you know, alumni and students and whatnot, there is sort of this uh, public reckoning that happens at these kinds of institutions that you don't typically see at you know, major Wall Street investment banks that are also investing in fossil fuels. I wanted to go back to Dr. Harry Saunders, who's a, a climate economist. Uh, Harry, you mentioned uh, marginalized communities. Again, they're least responsible for climate change, but impacted the most. Uh, you know, what are some other ways that activists can push uh, to, to see investments in these communities? Well, that's very key. That's what has to happen is there have to be actual flows of real funds. Um, uh, Umer has it, has it right. The, the South African um, situation, it was, it, so there are indirect effects of divestment that over time can take place. And in the case of South Africa, what it, what it was, it amounted to a restriction of flow of actual funds into that economy, and it hurt them. And, and, and um, so it wasn't divestment itself, but the ancillary uh, um, ancillary effects of it, and, and so yeah. I, but you know, the the massive poverty globally. There needs to be f- actual flows of funds into those countries to help them build out the infrastructure of modernity in a way that supplies clean, cheap, and abundant energy. And and uh, that should be the a key target of. Uh, of a movement like this, in my view. Uh, Harry Saunders, again, uh, is the Carnegie Energy Innovation Advisor to the Carnegie Institution for Science. Uh, Harry, thank you for joining us today here on Where We Live. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. With us from Monitor Studios in Washington, D.C. is Umer Irfan, staff writer at Vox.com. Coming up after the break, uh, you know, again, divestment's one strategy to exert pressure on certain companies. But we're going to ask Umer to talk more about other ways consumers are advocating for change. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been learning about divestment. It's a growing movement to push investors to divest their shares in certain companies like oil, coal, and gas. Uh, av- activists have been advocating for divesting as a way to protest the role of fossil fuels in climate change, also encouraging others to invest in clean energy. Uh, my guest from Monitor Studios in Washington, D.C. is Umer Irfan, staff writer at Vox.com. Uh, Umer, we were curious, you know, when we think about divestment, that's one strategy, but can you talk about some uh, ways uh, people are trying to fight climate change in different uh, ways with their dollars? I know one such example is climate investing. That's right. I mean, um, it's uh, worth keeping in mind that, you know, a lot of activists will say that divestment is not the only tactic, that it is a one tool in a suite of different tactics. And so it's not just where you pull your money out of, but where you put your money into. And recently, investors and um, investment uh, companies have been coming up with the, what are called, you know, environmental, social and governance criteria. This is this uh, a way of evaluating stocks and investments based on you know how how well they how they impact the world and just how they impact humanity as a whole and by actively seeking these out you know investors can signal to you know investment banks essentially that there is a market for these kinds of funds these kinds of portfolios that we want companies evaluated on these grounds ranked and then so we can make our bets accordingly 
And so that's one way you can actually make a difference is to actively seek these out to seek out, you know, investment vehicles and that uh, promote the values that you are most interested in. And how have they performed uh, when people, again, when people are thinking about investing their money, they want to see uh, the biggest gains. Is this something uh, that is growing and there's an interest that, you know, there is going to be um, some uh, profit that someone can make uh, based on these changes in strategy? I mean, that's certainly the hope. I mean, it's a little bit early to tell, you know, whether, you know, completely ditching fossil fuel stocks will be beneficial. Uh, the uh, New York State Pension Fund, for example, uh, the, the, there was a study that was done, conducted on that, and uh, some researchers found that essentially they would have made more money if they ditched the fossil fuels in their portfolio. And so that was one sort of argument for getting rid of them is just the fact that there was a material benefit that you could have. Um, but looking forward, I mean, there's uh, there's this sort of an idea that we're sitting on a carbon bubble, that essentially all these fossil fuel companies have these huge swaths of coal, oil, and natural gas deposits that they will never be able to burn in a scenario where we're actually trying to fight climate change. So they're essentially overvalued. And so the idea now is that, you know, it's not necessarily that I want to divest from fossil fuels because I want to hurt the company, but I'm worried that my investment in those companies is going to hurt me. And that can, that's sort of a parallel concern that's, that's starting to take root. And uh, I think there are some investment vehicles that are coming up to kind of take advantage of that. Mm. There's also another strategy we've seen in recent years when we're looking at gun violence in uh, our country, uh, shareholder activism. Can you describe what that is? Right. I mean, this is sort of the counter argument to divestment. Like, do you have a stronger voice when you have a seat at the table or when you walk away? So the people who do believe that you have a stronger voice at the seat with the seat at the table, they're the shareholders of the companies. And in publicly traded companies, they have regular meetings with their shareholders that uh, people can weigh in on. And so we've seen that with companies like ExxonMobil, where shareholders have gone to these meetings and publicly demanded things like, you know, accountability for their impacts on climate change and also an evaluation of the risks that they face from rising sea levels and other concerns and a potential you know, world where carbon will be constrained. And companies do take that pretty seriously. I think Shell, in one of its uh, most recent uh, prospectus reports, uh, said that the divestment campaign is a risk, but so is shareholder activism. Mm -hmm. And these are both things that are going to be forcing them to uh, change their business model in a way that comports more with a future where carbon dioxide is going to be restricted. Uh, we had a reporter here at WNPR, Ryan Lindsay, uh, who reported on local activists buying gun stock to hold former Smith & Wesson Company accountable uh, to community. I imagine that also creates some tension between corporations and shareholders? Yeah, that's right. These uh, shareholder meetings can get pretty contentious. And there have been some companies that are now trying to restrict some of the shareholder activism or like restrict the, how long people can talk at these public meetings. But you know, once you've uh, bought a stock, I mean, it, it is sort of a pay-to-play operation when you buy a stock in a company. And so um, it's kind of hard to turn down people who are who actually, you know, own a part of your business. So it, it's it's um, it is a powerful way to to sort of make uh, decisions. But the question is, you know, are you more effective talking to these companies directly or are you more effective taking your money away from them? That's kind of the uh, core of the debate here. Uh, here in Connecticut, uh, consumers can actually shop around and switch their electricity plans to a 100% renewable energy source. Umer, any idea if uh, those kinds of efforts locally are gaining traction? Yeah, a lot of utilities do offer sort of a checkoff where you can select yeah, the renewable energy option. And often it comes with a surcharge. But if you show that there is a market for this, that there are people who are willing to concede the lowest price for a social or environmental benefit, that will encourage 
businesses to do more of it. And that will certainly encourage them to develop more renewable energy, knowing that they can still charge a premium for it. Um, and so, so that is one way to set it, send a signal. Uh, going back to climate investing, uh, again, uh, with uh, the U.S. pulling out of uh, the Paris Accord, uh, Asia also being a big uh, polluter, but they're also, in a way, uh, putting out more investments in solar panels, something that the U.S. is falling behind on. Right. I mean, many developing countries, they're hungry for energy in just about any form that they can get it. And so that does mean that they're investing in renewable energy, not necessarily for the green bona fides, but more so that they need energy in these remote areas where a major power plant won't be uh, a viable option. And so that's it's it's sort of a practical concern. But uh, the other practical concern is that air pollution is starting to become a huge political issue in countries like India and China. And they're finding out that they just can't build these massive plants anymore near these massive cities and they need cleaner options. So there are so it's not necessarily motivated by climate change, but there certainly is a huge and growing interest in renewable energy and clean energy for exactly those reasons. Well, I want to thank Umer Irfan for joining us today from Monitor Studios in Washington, D.C. He's a staff writer at Vox.com. We'll tweet out some links at where we live of uh, his reporting on divestment and other strategies where consumers are demanding change, looking at the climate change crisis. Uh, Umer, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Uh, today's show produced by Carolyn McCusker with help from Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. Thanks to Jesse Steinmetz on the phone. You can learn more about the show. Just download our podcast, uh, Where We Live, uh, on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.